0: You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Tuesday, April 25th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn. You are riding home with me. From Dalton, I got I got bad news for you you people who like to get the Christian commute on time. My new soccer camera is up and running, and I had two soccer games this weekend. And if I'm on the computer, I am watching video of my soccer games and taking time stamp notes and sending the time stamps to the parents on my team saying your daughter didn't do this right at this time stamp show her the video and tell her to fix it so either they're going to get sick of me real fast or they're going to be like wow this is awesome our coach is is helping our daughters get better and spending time Uh, doing this and I think I have assembled a culture that will uh, drift towards or lean towards doing the latter and appreciating the pinging and whatever free time I can find so although I was in the basement last night with my computer I uh, I was working on my I had some work stuff to do work work stuff to do and uh, on the side I was uploading some videos And I was lax about uploading Friday's show. Friday's show is on the phone. It sits right here. It's right right, right in my cup holder. So whenever I upload this show, I will upload Friday's show. Friday's show was uh, about an apologetic method class. Today's show is about pastoral ministry in the Through Seminary series. And I have a question in the inbox about 2nd Peter verse 3-9 about uh, God desiring all to be saved. You know, that that's always an interesting verse to bring up with people or that people bring up for various reasons. And we have the Bible chapter review in Matthew chapter 20. I think we're going to finish Matthew chapter 20 today verses 29 through 34. But before I do one more note You know how you do prayer requests in Sunday school and then every once in a while somebody's like, praise report? Praise report my son, whose knees went bad on him, got an MRI at the doctor. And he still has the bad parts of his knees. And the doctor would have had to put the boy in a cast just to walk around had the lesions on his knee bones been in a different spot. But instead they're in a non-load bearing area whatever that means. I mean, I thought your I thought your all your legs were load-bearing. It's not like a wall at your house. But they're in a non-load-bearing area, so he's allowed to ease back into sports, which meant he got to play baseball last night. And it was awesome, and he he went back out there. And he looked like he hadn't missed a game. All that to say, now we're back taking him to baseball. So if you want to get the Christian commute uploaded on a Thursday night, too bad, not till baseball season is over uh next week and then they have the playoffs so i just got busier but i can record these things anytime i want and i will eventually upload them for you it's not like the glory days of the christian commute the halcyon days of the christian commute where you guys would get an episode every day around 6 30 i'd get home i'd upload it immediately five days a week back before covid changed the way we worked and back before uh I moved my job to Dalton and decided to uh, try and coach every sport under the sun and then sign my kids up for every sport under the moon that I wasn't coaching. Matthew chapter 20 verses 29 through 34. As they were leaving Jerusalem, is that Jericho? Sorry, I think it says Jericho. Whoops, he's not to Jerusalem yet. Is that Jericho? He's leaving somewhere and I can't read my handwriting. As they were leaving wherever they were. I think they're on the way to Jerusalem. This is terrible. As they were leaving, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David. Have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want to have our eyes opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. All right, what's going on here? Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem with a large crowd. He's just had the episode with his disciples where they've tried to go over to the side, James and John have, and so we want to be in charge, and it made the other disciples upset. He's told them that he's going to be handed over uh, to be crucified when he gets to Jerusalem, but. The large crowds we know from reading forward, spoiler alert for those of you who have never read the Bible, the large crowds are going to dissipate and stop following him, but they're still following him at this point. And these blind men who are on the side of the road, we assume from the context that they're on the side of the road as beggars. Why else would they be there? Hear that Jesus is coming. You have to understand, there's no internet, there's no Twitter back in those days, there's no phones, and there's no newspapers. But these guys, who are not mobile people, beggars by the side of the road, blind men, they knew how. Jesus, they know who Jesus is, because word of who he is has spread. And these blind men recognize Jesus as the Messiah. How do I know that? Because they refer to him as son of David. They're all Jews. All of them are Jews. But they refer to Jesus as the son of David because the Messiah is supposed to be in the line of David. And they probably are not privy to the genealogical history that we have in Matthew chapter 1. They don't have a copy of that. And if they did, they couldn't read it because they're blind. But they recognize that the Messiah is coming their way. And what do they want from the Messiah? They want mercy. So they are screaming out for everything they're worth for Jesus to come have mercy on them. And the crowd wants them to shut up. They're bothered. There's really not a lot of compassion in this crowd who's following Jesus, which is sad. Now there's a million ways this could be spiritualized. The social justice people get a hold of this verse and say, There were hurting people on the side of the road... And the Christ followers were going to walk right past them and tell them to shut up. They wanted to ignore them. But Jesus didn't, and we're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus and not ignore the marginalized. And then all of a sudden, the marginalized are going to be defined by whatever the cultural, quote-unquote, woke uh, definition of the marginalized are. Not blind people who were pretty much helpless because there's no Americans with Disabilities Act in ancient Israel, beggars on the street. Should the crowd have had compassion on these men? Yes, the crowd should have been like, hey Jesus, hey there's these guys over there calling out to you, they want your help, these poor blind beggars, come help them Jesus, but instead they told them to be quiet because they were bothered by them. So yeah, this crowd should serve as an example to us of how not to act, by the way. I'm just not going to spiritualize the verse. The point is that the beggars are recognizing Jesus for who He is, the Messiah. And some of the people in the crowd, they don't. They're just following Him because He's being a miracle worker, because He's doing other things. Remember elsewhere in Scripture, uh, when... Jesus feeds the, the 5000 and they want to make him king right then. He's no, I'm not going to be king and people leave him and he says, "What do you want to do, Peter? Do you want to leave too?" And Peter says, "Lord, where will we go?" There's there's people that are going to leave him. We know that when he gets to Jerusalem because they if they really believed he was the Messiah, they would follow him all the way to the cross and wait for him to come out of the tomb. But the crowd doesn't have compassion. And again, you can spiritualize this and say, hey, there's people saying they're following Jesus today who don't have compassion. And guess what? That's true. There are people just taking up spots in church who really don't have compassion for people in need. But there's something special about these people in need. They have faith in God. And they see the Messiah, even though they're blind. They recognize the Messiah, I should say. And they ask for his help. And here's another thing that's interesting. They say they want their eyes opened. And the verse says their sight is restored. That they their sight is... They regain their sight. Which means... Or which implies, I should say, that these men weren't always blind. And uh, metaphorically speaking, their eyes have been closed. Or maybe physically speaking, maybe metaphorically is the wrong term. They, something has caused them to lose their sight. For them to quote-unquote close their eyes and Jesus touches their eyes because it says he does he touches their eyes and immediately their sight is restored so imagine these guys could have been some nasty looking guys and we don't know what ailment they had but they didn't have ophthalmologists in this day they probably had some pretty nasty eye gook To say the least, these are people who would have probably been dirty. Everybody was dirty back then. But people who are disabled tend to become dirtier than the rest of us because it's harder for them to bathe and they live harder lives. Everything's harder for them. So you can imagine there's these nasty beggars on the side of the road with nasty gook in their eyes. And I'm just assuming they have gook in their eyes. They could have had some other kind of eye defect. Not everybody who goes blind has calls a gook. But Jesus touches their eyes and they can see again. So they are not regarded by Jesus as somebody or as people who are unclean, who are to be avoided. Jesus has, he's moved with compassion. Something's moving with inside his heart, is, 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 is reaching out to these people. He feels for them, and he has mercy on them, and he regains their sight. Their eyes are opened physically, but spiritually their eyes had always been opened. And now that they're able physically, they follow Jesus. Seeing Jesus for who he is is a spiritual thing. And on the inside, in their souls, if you will, these guys recognize Jesus for who he was and with that we'll end the Bible chapter review and I'm in some thick traffic today and I don't know why it's Tuesday and I'm stuck in the right lane because I tried to get over to the far right lane I'm about to get over to the middle I think I, I think I'm about to break through the cause of this traffic is uh one of these little uh, not little there's no such thing as a little Ford transit van but there's the little the, the bigger ones and the smaller ones it's one of the smaller ones and this guy is going sub 70. In the left lane. This is what we consider an inconsiderate person. This is not loving. You're not loving your neighbor. You're being obtuse. You're making the Christian commute longer. And I don't have enough material to get me all the way home. He's finally getting over. Finally getting over. All right. Somebody wrote in. And it was the last person to write in to SethDunn88 at gmail.com after this i don't have a question in the inbox to answer on thursday's show i've got no money in the bank to pay the question fee if you will now i'm stuck behind a pickup truck i don't know if this guy's a painter or a construction worker of some kind he's got a bunch of ladders on a roof rack why are you in the left lane and the reason is he doesn't want to go as slow as the ford transit van but he wants to go slower than the rest of us. Come on in your Dodge truck. But he can't get over. He can't get over because he he hasn't yet passed the transit van. This is terrible. So now I have a decision. Do I go three wide and pass them both? The answer is yes. Because I, I don't know that this guy in the Dodge will have the consideration to get over to the middle. Don't assume somebody's going to do the right thing. In driving and life the only time you should assume somebody's gonna do the right thing is when you're playing soccer or basketball or football with them you run your route you get in your space and you trust your teammate to do their job oh this is dang it dang it I didn't make it I got caught behind a tractor trailer oh I'm never gonna get to this question by the way the question is from Terry in California from the devil's country, Diablo Valley or something like that, literally. And she has a question about a specific verse of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Now, 2 Peter is 2 not a long book. So you can pause the show and read the whole thing, or you can pause the show and just read chapter 3. But pause the show and read. But don't just read verse 9. So here you go, pause unpause I got, that didn't take you long right you you guys did it You're back and now I'm stuck behind the Ford Transit van again and you know who got over in the middle lane the truck with the ladders so I'm no better off than I was before I took a risk and I got no reward Terry from California wrote to Seth dunn 88 at gmail.com You can also dial 470-315-0875. The Christian Commute is your theological roadside assistance. This transit van is from Ohio. Some kind of foreigner. Yes, a real foreigner. Like somebody from another country, not just a Yankee. You guys are foreigners to me too. Driving So slow-driving Yankee. If there's any slow-driving Yankees who need to listen to a question, you can write to Seth Dunn. 88 at gmail.com. Somebody write in. Somebody. I want somebody to write in. I want somebody to write in. Can anybody find me? Somebody to write in. Alright. What about 2 Peter nine? Terry writes a long question. I'm going to try and summarize it. We know from the scripture as a whole that God predestined the elect to be saved. And the people who aren't predestined to be saved are going to go to hell. All right? They're going to they're going to perish. We know that. We also know from scripture that people go to hell. So whether or not you believe in the predestination of the saints, the election, what we might call unconditional election, Whether you believe in conditional election or unconditional election, there's plenty of people out there, or something in between, like a bunch of Baptists, there are plenty of people out there who believe that, yes, people are eventually going to go to hell. In other words, people who are not universalists. And I like to say these people have not come to the realization that God has predestined people. Lots of Christians have not come to that realization. I was was in my late 20s before I came to, maybe early 30s before I figured that out. But I still knew I was saved, I I knew how to get saved, I knew how to act when I was saved, I knew how other people should act when they're saved, and I knew that some people are eventually going to go to hell. Why? Because the Bible says so. It says so in Revelation, that there's going to be a great white throne judgment, and some people are going to be cast into hell with the devil and his angels. Jesus is going to separate the sheep and the goats. We know that there's a final judgment, and we know some people are resurrected to new life, and that others are sent to the second death, that is hell. So what I'm saying is, there's people who are not universalists who read Second Peter chapter two verses three, or uh, Second Peter, sorry, Second Peter chapter three verse nine, and they don't come away thinking everybody's going to get saved. And all of these people think God is sovereign. Now we know there's open theists out there. We you can't account for heretics. So what does 2 Peter 3, verse 9 say? God is not slow in fulfilling his promises, as some count slowness, but wishing everyone to be saved or not desiring anyone to perish, he's delaying his coming. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You guys just wrote it. But people read that and they say, all right. This says God doesn't want anyone to perish he wants everyone to get saved that's what he doesn't want any to perish and that's what they read and then they say to themselves I'm not a universalist because the other part of scripture is very clear that people are going to go to hell so I know not everyone's going to be saved and here I have this scripture that says God wants everybody to get saved and I'm using get saved in our modern, evangelical, Christianese terms. Alright? Not necessarily the language Peter would have used. God wants everybody to get saved. Everybody is not going to get saved. Because here's these other verses of Scripture, chapters of Scripture, where God's casting people into hell. And, I'm, and God's omnipotent. God is sovereign. Now, there's people who could be an open theist who say, well... There's some limit to God's sovereignty. God doesn't know what's gonna happen, doesn't know what people are gonna do, doesn't necessarily know what he's gonna do. We're not put open theists over to the side. Open theists can believe whatever, you know. They can they can take a heretical direction. So what do I do? God's sovereign. He wants everybody to get saved, and yet not everybody is gonna get saved. And some people reason into saying, well. God is going to just let people choose. So he would like everyone to get saved. But he's not going to make people get saved. He's going to let them have their choice. And although God is sovereign... Some people say, God's a gentleman, which is a stupid argument I've talked to before. He's going to let people make that decision, and that's how they reconcile things. And quite frankly, I think a lot of people do that backwards. They come to that more Armenian-leaning position, which I chose to get saved, and then I'm going to use this as my proof text against that Calvinism. If anybody ever wonders why I say that Calvinism, that comes from a real person. I was in a grocery. I was in Ingalls in Cartersville and there's this guy who works for the county. I think he works for the road department in the county. And he I think he's a lay minister at his church because he was always at the Bartow County uh, ministers meetings. And I saw him in Ingalls one time. I was like, hey man, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. And I was like, what have you been up to? He's like, Well, I've been reading I've been reading a lot of Charles Spurgeon. I really like it. And he goes, It's got that Calvinism in it. So that's Whenever I say that that Calvinism, that comes from a real person, like one of the a Christian guy, evangelistic guy, active in his church, but just like does not get it when it comes to election. That Calvinism. So they I got that Calvinism, I got second Peter three nine as my proof text. Well hold on a minute. We know that not everybody gets saved, so it precludes universalism. So you ha- when you're talking to somebody, say, you're not a universalist, are you? Because we've got another problem if you are. Well, no, I'm not a universalist. All right, neither am I. So we know that not everybody is going to get saved. We recognize this. So now we have to get down to this verse and say, all right, what does this mean? Because God is sovereign and he's omnipotent. Can't he have whatever he wants? Millard Erickson, in his systematic theology, when he's talking about this verse, he differentiates between what he calls God's will, his decretive will, I think, and then God's wishes. Which is, <laughs> it's one of those things like, why would God have wishes? Can't he just do whatever he wants? It's like me, like, I wanted a soccer camera, I got one. I'm not going to go the rest of my life without a soccer camera. I can afford it. Like God's bank account is unlimited. He can do whatever he wants. But what the people say is, like, God wants them to get saved. But it's their free will to do it or not. He's not going to violate their free will. And the way that I, quote, unquote, reconcile this verse is... I don't think this has anything to do with free will. We got to look at what is Second Peter about, and First Peter for that matter. He's writing to Christians, and the Christians want Jesus to come back. Why? Because they're they're being persecuted. They're dispersed. They're despised, and they want Jesus to come back. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to wipe out all the bad people. Boom! Wipe out the earth. You're going to remake it. So they have this eschatological expectation. Judgment's coming. The great and terrible day of the Lord. And they want the great and terrible day of the Lord to come. It's like when Harry met Sally with these people. When you realize who you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want the rest of your life to start right now. And when you realize that Jesus is our blessed hope, you say, Marathana. Come, Lord Jesus. I want you to come right now. Take me home to your kingdom and destroy this wicked earth. That's how these people are feeling. And they know it's promised. So they're thinking, where is the promise? This is supposed to be immediate. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow about keeping his promise, which is his promise to return and judge and save. As some count slowness. Because with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. By the way, don't read that into Genesis 1. It's not what that means. It's not, oh, it's 7,000 years. No. And we get it. God's eternal. Like How, how, how long does it take time to one second to pass for me? It takes one second. How long does it take one second to pass for God? One second. Okay. But we know qualitatively, You know, my 100-year lifespan seems like a long time for me. It's not a long time for God. It's really not a long time in church history. So we get what Peter's saying. He's not being slow. And he's saying, not wishing for any to perish, he's delayed his coming. And Peter is writing to the elect about the judgment coming on the non-elect. And you remember, you're either in one group or the other. And I think what this means where we have to land on this is that God knows in his foresight and foreknowledge that there are people who are going to come to Christ through the witness of those very persecuted people, the elect. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. There, there are people who are going to come to Christ through that, through that witness and join the elect. A year from now, five years from now, 2,000 years from now. Or two thousand years from then, and God is waiting for the what we might call the fullness of time. To use an Old Testament, to use an Old Testament term, until the iniquity is complete of the non-elect on the earth, then He's going to come back. What are the people in Second Peter wishing for? Wrath and judgment on the wicked, unrighteous, evildoers. What is Peter saying? We have a compassionate God who wants more people to be saved. He's not desiring that any perish. They are going to perish. We know that. By the way, everybody, Peter and everybody he's writing to, knows that God is going to make people perish. That's what's happening on the great and terrible day of the Lord, the judgments that's coming. But Peter says not desiring that any should perish. But we know that they're going to perish. He's talking about the timing of the perishing to the elect. Nothing to do with free will. Nothing. And I can remember even as a young person, as a kid, before I was ever some seminary trained theologian, before I ever went to college for anything, hearing this verse preached and knowing from what had been taught to me and from what was in the Bible that well people go to hell and here it says God doesn't want anybody to perish he wants all to be saved and I'm like well I know not everybody's going to get saved and I know God's sovereign so there must be some explanation for this this doesn't mean universalism I know that and then eventually I learned how to interpret things in context common sense and the rest of scripture said this is not universalism. And then when I eventually came to the understanding that God has predestined his elect and it really doesn't have anything to do with my free will choice. It has everything to do with his grace and his mercy and his will. We call that monergism. When I came to that realization, it's not like it undid this verse for me. I still knew that verse was there. I was like, just as it just as it doesn't refute universalism, it doesn't refute predestination. And by the way, I don't march around thinking, well, the predestination this, predestination that. It's a really impractical doctrine. Unless unless you try to do the opposite and finny people into getting saved. But it doesn't really trip up my idea of predestination at all. And Terry, I think you have a pretty good idea of that from just the commentary you sent in your email. So thanks for writing in. Now let's talk about pastoral ministry. And by the way, pastoral ministry, part of that would be explaining verses like this to people in your church. You had questions. Somebody's going to say, hey preacher, I I, I know you say that it's decision time, get saved or not, or you're going to go to hell, but this says God doesn't want anybody to perish, which is it? And you have to say, oh hold on, let me explain it. That's part of pastoral ministry. And this is one of the practical seminary courses I had to take. Not a theological course, so to speak. But of course, I mean, there's there's a theology of, of being a pastor. There's a, you know, how are you qualified? What are you supposed to do? I don't want to say it's atheological. I just want to say it's one of the more practical courses in the professional degree that is a Master of Divinity. And this was taken in 2015 fall internet session after taking two uh, winter workshops, apologetics and apologetic method. And my teacher in this course was Dr. Barlow. Dr. Barlow has gone on to be with the Lord since then. I think he died about five years ago. And uh, pastoral ministry. And I, I think I took it right before church leadership and administration, I'm going to say this, was one of those two classes combined were the most disappointing courses I took in seminary. I might have quit if I had taken them first and not taken the theological uh, underpining class. Because the, the pastoral ministry class combined with the church leadership and administration class sort of uh, nauseated me. And I've told the story here before about uh, reading John Bisano's book, Pastor's Handbook. And John Bassanio was an SBC megachurch pastor, Beth Moore's pastor in Houston. And he wrote a book called Pastor's Handbook. And I think I had this course in my I can't remember if it was for my church leadership and administration class or, or pastoral ministry class. I can't remember which one it was. But I remember it saying the you can't visit everybody in the hospital the head of deacons gets a visit everybody else gets a phone call and paint your trolleys up like disney Now mickey mouse and then strike through that moses saying make your church look like disney world with trolleys and coffee to make people want to come copy ronnie floyd's church because if you get the young people you'll get their parents it's literally what it said and i can remember reading that book waiting for my son to be born my son Ethan to be born or was it my son Elkin? I think it was my son Ethan, I got so many kids I can remember sitting in the windowsill at Kennestone Hospital reading that Pastoral Pastor's Handbook from John Bisano, and just feeling nauseous, like this is crap, why is this in the seminary? and you want to use the term woke, or I want to, that's when I started to wake up like what is the Southern Baptist machine really like? what is church culture really like? What happens when we get away from the, uh, the theological grounding and into the practical, and it's bad? Uh, so I may be uh, running or jumping forward ahead because I just don't remember which class that book was for. But I've I can talk about the pastoral leadership and administration class uh, whether that book was for, and I had another terrible book in that class. So we, if I had two terrible books, I did. The pastoral ministry uh, by uh, Dr. Barlow had that sort of nauseating part in it. But there were some good parts, too. It's stuff that you might not think about. And stuff that the Bible doesn't explain to us. How to do a funeral. How to do a wedding. You guys remember when I went and got licensed uh, to, uh, for the ministry? And now I can legally marry people in certain states? Like Arkansas, where I did uh, my first wedding, first and only wedding. Nowhere in the Bible does it say this is how you do a wedding ceremony. Yeah, we all have seen people do the wedding vows. I, I take thee to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, from this day forward until death do us part. Uh, in sickness and health, good times and bad, for richer, for poorer. And then the preacher says, by the power vested in me by Almighty God in the state of wherever I am, I now pronounce you man and wife. What does it say in the Bible that you have to get married by a pastor or a preacher? Nowhere. People are getting married all the time in biblical times. They're doing it however they're doing it. They didn't feel the need to explain it. Same thing for a funeral. How are you supposed to do a funeral? Are you supposed to have somber music play while everybody walks in and sits down, and then a preacher gets up and says prayer and says a little mini sermon and eulogizes somebody, and then you sing a song and then you take them to the grave? Where does it say to do that in the Bible? Nowhere. Practically speaking, on planet Earth in the United States, in the South, who's doing that? Pastors. They are counseling the ber- bereaved and uh, comforting the bereaved at death. And they are celebrating marriages with people. Bar- marrying and burying. So people expect that of the pastor. Of their church. Just because how history has happened. Not, I was going to say not a lot of, personally not any, biblical instruction on that. So, the, the pastoral ministry class is basically telling you, this is what people expect, and this is how you should do it. Just like, we well, found this works. And you want to be—you don't want to be unbiblical and say, we not want to do anything against the Bible. Like, for example, in the, the pastoral ministry class, it says, don't preach people into heaven. If they weren't Christians, or they didn't demonstrate that they lived a Christian life, don't get up there and try and preach person into heaven like they like they were this good Christian. Their family knows they weren't. That's false comfort. Proclaim the gospel. You know, remember the the times of the loved one and proclaim the gospel. And guys, a lot of time people, times people die. Uh, I'll, I'll call them spiritually intestate. Do you know what it means to die intestate? If I wrecked my car and it blew up right now and I died, I would die intestate because I don't have a will. And my property would have to get meted out, probably to my wife, through the probate court system. If you don't have a will, the law determines what happens to your stuff. I mean, the law really always determines what happens to your stuff. But if you have a will, it says this is where my stuff should go. And really, somebody with six kids and a house should have a will. I don't. Uh, I guess I'll eventually get one if I live long enough. So if I died intestate, I wouldn't. You know, nobody would know what to do with my stuff. If you die spiritually intestate, it means you don't have a church home or a church family. So the funeral home sometimes they just have preachers that they call and say, "Here's some stranger, and we've got a funeral service for him. We need you to come in and preach because that's what people expect. You don't even know them, and you're gonna have to say something generic about death and find out a little about them." I'm a big believer in whoever preaches, and this is not from the Bible, it's just my opinion, and whoever preaches your funeral service should know you. Not just the old person minister from the church at which you were a member that maybe you haven't been to in five years because uh, you were in a nursing home or you or you were on the homebound list, you know, can that person maybe visited you once a month, do they even know you? People who know, Christians who know you, I think, should preacher funeral but that's not how it works in real life it's the same thing too people want you to marry marry them they don't know you from adam oh, we want to use your church to marry. oh you're a preacher can you marry us well yeah i can but should i and like what should i say during the wedding so that class practically prepares you for things like that so you know what to do and so you know what to expect and so you don't in in the in the course of pleasing people and giving them what they expect, do anything that God doesn't want you to do, or anything that would be unbiblical, like preaching somebody into heaven, or you know, marrying uh, unequally yoked people. I don't know if marrying unequally yoked people came up, but that that's what came through in pastoral ministry. Which, is, by the way, ministry. Pastoral ministry is separate and distinct from church leadership and administration because there's really two different things. I know the pastor's doing both as a bishop, episcopal overseer, which is the administrative part, which I guess you really don't have to be a preaching pastor to do that, a teaching elder to do that. That's another extra-biblical term that we commonly use, teaching elder and lay elder, ruling elder, especially among the Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists. But it's how to minister to people, like how to help hurting people, how to comfort, how to give you know, give joy to people, how to tell people what the Bible means, outside of preaching a sermon. And you can see where the other courses bleed into this, like preaching practicum and proclaiming the Bible is a part of your pastoral ministry. Pastoral counseling is a part of your pastoral ministry all that bleeds in but there's more you know they're not there's not a class they they're not going to call it funeral and weddings 101 <laughs> so that was pastoral ministry and as a seminary course for somebody who's like I want to learn the bible I want everything to be grounded in the bible it was sort of frustrating one might call it empty because I don't, there's it's not like here's the scripture and then we're going to then we're going to explain how pastoral ministry ties to the Scripture. There's no, like I said, there's no directions for a lot of this. There's just uh, the man of God must be equipped for every good work. We got from Timothy. All right, how? What are the good works we're going to do? Well, here's several of them. You could be doing these things typically, and here's the best way to do them. So I'm not going to say it's it's a a course you don't need for an MDiv. I think it's definitely a helpful course. It's just not a particularly theological fulfilling course. And for me, somebody who was an accountant now and and was an accountant then and has never entered into vocational ministry, it's not stuff that I'm going to do on a weekly basis. I mean, if you're a pastor, you're doing this stuff every day. I don't do any pastoral ministry. I do theological application. I did this and this. I do it every day on this podcast, but pastoral ministry is not something that I have the blessing to do. Maybe one day I will, but for now uh, I'm doing Power BI ministry. Like, hey salesperson, here's a report. Let me explain your sales to you. Let me over, minivan. Oh man, I'm stuck. Hold on. I knew it. I'm stuck at the turn signal on Joe Frank Harris Parkway. All right. Let me park at the red light here and stop at the red light and wrap this up. Practical course there from Dr. Barlow. Needed course. You might call it a necessary evil of seminary training. Uh, And nowhere near as aggravating as church leadership and administration, which I I think I took that next. Maybe I'll cover that next time. I didn't look ahead on my transcript. I'm just going through my transcript and picking whatever's next. I'm going in chronological order, not concentration order. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again Thursday. No, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I usually work from home on Wednesday. But I'm meeting my friend for lunch in Calhoun on Wednesday. Because it's Dubs Wednesday. So uh, maybe maybe I'll do a show on the way back. Maybe, maybe not. But Lord willing, I'll be back with you again sometime this week. And uh, Lord willing, I'll, I'll upload this show. Hopefully, I'll upload it tonight because I had to cut out of work a little early to get home in time for soccer practice. So I'm going to have to make up the time, even though I get paid by the year, not by the hour. I'm going to have to make up the time when I get back from soccer practice. So I'll probably be in the basement working around 9 or 10 o'clock. And I'll have my work computer and my personal computer down there. So I should be able to find five minutes to upload these two shows, hopefully. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.